And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When you talk about the challenges to our democracy, you have to start by looking at the challenges to our economy of rapid changes wrought by technology. And no one's thought more about this than Congressman Ro Khanna, a brand new member of Congress uh, from Silicon Valley, who's made it his business to travel the country talking about the transformation of the economy, the changes in the nature of work, and what we need to do as a country to adapt to them so that the largest number of people get the opportunities they need. Congressman Khanna came by the Institute of Politics uh, the other day, and we sat down to talk about this and his own really interesting story. Congressman Ro Khanna, first of all, welcome back to the University of Chicago. I know you uh, you cut your teeth here, your academic teeth here, some uh, in the 90s, so... Uh, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. I had uh, lunch at Medici. I didn't know it was still around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That Now, that's an institution. For those of you who come to Chicago, <laughs> the Medici on 57th Street. You've uh, talked about your story as kind of a classic American story. Um, share share your story uh, with us, your, your family story and my uh, parents came here in uh, the 1960s. My father came uh, to study chemical engineering at uh, Michigan. Uh, then he went back uh, to India, got married to my mom. Uh, they came. My mom came over in uh, early 1970s. I was born in Philadelphia. Why'd they come over? They came over for opportunity, for education. I mean, my dad uh, was, uh, there was much better chance back then to have a great education here and it was in the, as you remember, it was in the 60s when he came, there was Sputnik and the sense that we wanted people uh, with an engineering or science background. It was the simplest thing to come. He got uh, a visa, student visa early on. And then uh, when he worked at a chemical engineering company, he got a green card. And, uh, you know, we really were uh, opening open to people in science. And it was also after the civil rights movement. And uh, before 1965, uh, there were very few Indian Americans or Chinese Americans, and it was really the civil rights movement that led to the Immigration Reform Act of 65 that uh, opened immigration to Asia. You know, the the obvious question is uh, about where we are now. I was really dismayed to read about um, the kind of precipitous decline in the number of uh, international students who are applying to American colleges and universities. Now, I think 40 percent was the number in the, you know in the current uh, class of, of students who were applying for admission? What is the impact of that? Well, one, it's not having the best and brightest come to the United States. That's one of the things that make us great, uh, as opposed to the Ming Dynasty in China that didn't have sort of diversity of people from around the world. Our uh, uniqueness was we really attracted talent from every part of the world. And now those folks are just going to be creating jobs and starting companies in other places. And it also diminishes, in some sense, American leadership. I mean, one of the advantages we had is uh, people looked up to America because so many folks uh, knew someone uh, who studied here or had an influence on, on our ideas. You, are, uh, you, you studied economics before you went to law school. Do you, 
have you and I'm and I'm sure you have very a bunch of smart folks who you uh, tap for uh, for various data. Have you uh, studied what the impact of uh, this sort of uh, abandonment, not a, or retreat on immigration, uh, might have on our economy? Well, there's studies all over the place. I don't want to uh, quote something inaccurate, but I think it's, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of that of value that immigrants have created, either through startup companies or uh, by helping build so many technology companies. And I think that the important thing to know is uh, many of them who come to the United States, we're paying for their education, we're subsidizing them. Uh, and then we're, if we're asking them to go back, we're basically paying for their education and saying create uh, jobs or companies uh, overseas. And anyone, you know, for all of the president's talk about American greatness, I uh, ask the counterfactual. I mean, imagine uh, a world where Google, Facebook, Tesla, uh, Yahoo were Chinese companies or, uh, or, or European companies. Uh, that wouldn't be a, an America we would want. We want these companies here. And anyone who's walked through those companies know they're people from around the world. That's partly what makes them uh, uh, so successful. You know, when the uh, when the uh, Obama administration and, and the Senate passed an immigration reform bill during his administration, uh, the uh, Congressional Budget Office did uh, an estimate and said that uh, it would add – uh, I think it was 1.4 trillion was the number. See, I don't mind crea- uh, quoting inaccurately, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Yeah. 1.4 uh, trillion over a decade. Um, so presumably the, the 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 reverse is true as well. If we if we ratchet down immigration, there's a fairly significant number in terms of lost growth that we can count on. Absolutely, and as you know, David, the biggest factor of America's economic growth from 1950 to today was actually women entering the workforce because one of the biggest uh, restrictors on uh, economic growth was our labor supply. So now we're not going to have the luxury of uh, a huge increase of women in the workforce. One of the things we need is uh, is, is immigrants at all, all levels. And uh, to restrict it is to, to restrict uh, America's economic growth. Now, no one's saying there haven't been abuses. I mean, part of uh, the abuse, I think, of some of these companies that have over 50% H-1B visa uh, holders or people who are uh, using foreign workers to pay below market wages, I think those few examples have been so excessive that they've gotten people uh, questioning all immigration. And my view is we should reform some of the abuses but not uh, throw out uh, all the immigration that's led to our success. It's interesting. You, uh, you've been traveling the country, I know, talking to uh, people in, uh, particularly in rural communities and communities, factory towns where the factories have, have long since gone. And uh, President Trump did very well there uh, in the fall, as you know. And uh, there is this uh, sense of loss there and a sense that uh, it is immigration it is trade uh, that has cost people their jobs or uh, middle class wages, um, and it's kind of it's translated into an ugly strain in our country. Some of which uh, aimed at uh, at Indian Americans. We saw the incident in Kansas that was so tragic. Um, 
as an Indian American, how do you process all of that? And what are you what are you saying to folks when you're out there and having this dialogue? Well, I start as many people do with their own upbringing. I mean, I grew up in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. It's a uh, fairly uh, suburban, rural. It was ninety nine percent Caucasian. When my family was moving into our street, there was a, a little bit of chatter on, on the street. The Kanas are moving in. And uh, my parents finally figured out what, what the fuss was about. Uh, I'm of, of Hindu faith. And uh, on Christmas Eve, everyone would put the candlelights on the street. So my dad said, we'd be happy to put the candlelights on the street. And we put out street lights. And uh, for 18 uh, years growing up, we had great relationships with with the neighborhood. So there was a sense of me that uh, believes fundamentally in the decency, kindness uh, of, of most uh, Americans and uh, a challenge of how do we find this common identity and respect for some of the traditions while being proud of your own own heritage. When I went to uh, Paintsville, I don't go on too long, but John Yarmouth, who's a member of Congress Kentucky. in Kentucky, he said to me, Roy, you should know two facts about uh, where you're going down. One, Barack Obama lost this uh, area to Hillary Clinton in the primary 9% to 91%. Yeah, and I, I remember that. You do well now. You, you guys, I read, was on the nine percent side <laughs> in that one. You guys read a brilliant campaign, so this is not a, a criticism well, uh, I mean, in any way. But it's just uh, math, just math. But he said, <laughs> so he said, "What do you think?" I said, "Well, probably had something to do with race." Well, he said, "Well, uh, Jesse Jackson in 1988 won that county," and I said, "Really?" I said, "How did he do that?" Uh, and he said, "He showed up." You know, Obama didn't need to show up. Those areas you had the the the, the uh, primary. One for other reasons, but there was something to his point of just showing up mattered. And I got to tell you, when I went there, uh, there was such a, a a warm reception from folks. So, so here's this person coming uh, uh, to our community, talking not in a patronizing way, not okay. Here I'm from Silicon Valley. Let me tell you what you need to do, but in a way of listening. Uh, understanding what what they wanted, and and here's the thing: people are far smarter, I think, than we give them credit for. This idea that uh, coal miners and their families don't know what's happening with globalization and trade is is patronizing. I mean, they know they they love coal, they're proud of coal, they think coal helped build our economy, but they want their kids to have other opportunities as well. And 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 what they often came up with was diversification of the economy. And there are two two points that I think are uh, really interesting. One, they view technology as possibly empowering. In, in the past, you had to be either a coal miner or a nurse or a doctor, or you had to leave eastern Kentucky, Appalachia. Well, they don't want to leave. Just like someone in Silicon Valley doesn't want to go to live in uh, eastern Kentucky, someone in eastern Kentucky doesn't really want to live in Silicon Valley. So all these fancy econo- uh, economists... Well, or maybe or, even talk to people from Silicon Valley, but maybe you've broken that down a little. Well, um or, or I mean, they were certainly very gracious, but you know they don't want to leave, and so they say, "Now look, technology, I can uh, do things and work while staying in our community." And um, it's an odd life that many people live, like my wife and I, where you know I'm uh, half the time in California and she's in uh, D.C. and she, we're expecting a kid, and my parents are in Philadelphia and her parents are in Cleveland. It's not clear to me that that's the best way of living. Certainly hasn't been the case for so much of human history. People lived in their communities with their grandparents and their cousins, and and, and, and people are proud of those communities. And so uh, part of what was is how do we get these communities to embrace 
uh, technology in a way that they may follow it empowering and allowing them to have jobs in those areas. Uh, the second point, uh, which uh, Megan uh, Smith, who you know, who was the yeah. CTO, made, which was fascinating to me. She said, "John, she was F- a CTO in the White House, in the White House." Yeah. Said John F. Kennedy went to uh, McDowell, West Virginia, nineteen fifty-nine, and talked about thirty-five percent unemployment. Bernie Sanders was there in two thousand sixteen, talking about thirty-five percent unemployment. Now, if I was them, I'd vote everyone out, too. I mean, yes, we've made progress in nutrition and on uh, people not starving, but there's been this sense of, uh, of, of lack of jobs, lack of opportunity. She said that when Kennedy was there in 1959, the coal miners, this famous scene, started chanting, uh, Senator Kennedy, go to the moon, go to the moon. You know, people want to be part of uh, the economic future, and we have to figure out how we're going to make that uh, possible. Don't, uh, but I guess you'd argue that, Don, or, or or he would argue that Donald Trump spoke to that, that he at least he spoke to their sense of wanting to be partisan and being left out of something. But it had a quite an edge to it, and, and really where I was going was, I mean, I, I it I accept that you you had a a, a a great experience in Bucks County, but right now the tone in the country is much different, and 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 Trump fingered immigrants as the cause of a lot of 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 their of the distress of distressed communities trade as the you don't accept that obviously um so how did that dialogue go i mean it, did you were you able to have an honest dialogue about those issues i certainly don't accept that trade was the cause of uh folks being left behind. Uh, Although in a lot of these communities, these factories did leave. The factories left. And, and you know, China's admission to the WTO, you can argue that there were about a million jobs lost after that. And certainly they had a disproportionate effect. So even if they helped the economy overall, they hurt particular communities. And Isn't that sort of like the core thing is that we we are we are experiencing enormous growth and progress but it's disparate. It's not. It's not. Uh, all boats are not rising here. So, in Silicon Valley, people are doing fantastically well. In that county, in uh, in Kentucky, uh, it's a different story. Yeah, I, I do think our country is divided by place. Now, even in Silicon Valley, there are people left out, and even in my district. But I think you're absolutely right that the gains of uh, technology and globalization have gone to disproportionately, disproportionately ge- geographically. And this is where I think people often uh, misunderstand uh, the Luddite movement, where you say, oh, that person's a Luddite. Well, the Luddites weren't opposed to technology. They were saying these folks who had the power looms were uh, not having a just society, that they had no real understanding of uh, how they were going to provide for skills and education of people being left behind. And so we've got to say, uh, what are we doing? What's our obligation uh, to tap into the, uh, the 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 work ethic, the the pride, and not just give some handout? Because these folks, in, right? You know, they're they. Well, some of you, you know, Bill Gates and others have talked about guaranteed income for people who've been left behind in the economy, and their particular concern, and it's one I want to ask you about, is automation, which Silicon Valley is driving. Right. Uh, and so, you know, speaking of driving, like driverless <laughs> cars, for example, driverless right. trucks, soon to be online, millions of jobs uh, lost, good-paying jobs 
uh, in the economy. Um, and it strikes me that that guaranteeing there may be some uh, you know whether it's through the earned income tax credit supplemental income right. for people so that who are working hard and and uh, need the need that to to uh, to make ends meet. But um, the notion of handing people checks and 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 yet not uh, giving them the opportunity to be productive seems soul crushing to me. I think that's a, a tr- that's a not a prescription for a healthy society. I agree, and I don't think it's what people want. I mean, you go to uh, in Eastern Kentucky, and they the first thing they'll say are we're very hardworking people, the work ethic, and we they're proud of having contributed. Uh, to the country and and to have to contributed uh, to the economy, they don't want uh, someone's a handout. Uh, they want to achieve their potential. I mean, they want to uh, have a meaningful contribution in work. I mean, a lot of times they think, okay, you get your hands dirty or think that's real work. Uh, but there has to be some cons- concept of how we're going to get them uh, an opportunity to make a contribution. Now, I think the idea. You think the Democratic Party provided that in the? It seems to me that wasn't really discussed in 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 compelling and authentic ways in the last campaign. At least I agree. I may not get into trouble for saying this, but I I was screaming off uh, to to people. I was you know I was still a candidate. I wasn't in Congress, and I was saying to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Instead of coming 15 times to raise money in my district, I look, I recognize they're all politicians. We have to fundraise. No one is holier than thou. But what about having— You raised a few bucks. I raised, I raised money, and, and, and as, did, as do most politicians. Um, but I said, what about having some of these tech leaders instead of going out to Indiana, going out to Michigan to talk about what they're doing there and what opportunities they can create there? You know, Salesforce created 1,000 jobs in Indiana— 50 miles away from where Carrier created 600 jobs. Now, most Democrats think, oh, Carrier, that was stupid, that was dumb. I think it was a huge political success for President Trump. I disagree with everything he's done, more or less. But he was saying to people, I'm fighting for your jobs. I get you. We have to say, no, I think he has the wrong vision. Some of those jobs uh, may not be coming back. But we got Well, and in fact, Carrier, uh, one of the interesting things that happened was they said, yes, we will keep our factory here, but we're going to look at automating a lot of it. So the the factory will be there, but the jobs may not, or many of the jobs may not, which seems to be the real challenge that we were talking about before, that as companies rationalize their operations and use technology to become more efficient, more and more jobs moving up the scale as artificial intelligence takes hold. Are, are going to disappear. But there'll be new jobs as well. There may be jobs in uh, elder care as our population ages, in, in child care. There'll be jobs of manipulating the machines uh, and uh, understanding. It may be that the factory worker uh, tomorrow is going to be very different in skills. Let me give you a— And needing more elaborate skills. So I'll give you a concrete example. There's this company, uh, Flex, in Silicon Valley that is— uh, has a cloud computing model for manufacturing. So in the past, manufacturers would have all the IT and software uh, in their factory. And this basically takes it into the cloud. And they're helping manufacturers in Michigan. Uh, and they are uh, creating more jobs because those manufacturers are becoming more productive. 
Uh, and if you asked them on the ground the reality of those manufacturers, they won't tell you that their concern is, uh, well, robots are eliminating all the jobs. They'll say, we don't have enough folks who have the right skills to to do these new jobs. And so part of it is uh, figuring out what that skill set will be, uh, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in politics or writing, uh, technology is going to change all aspects of, of, uh, of the skill set. And I think we haven't thought enough about what that would look like. And we didn't present a compelling enough vision to counter Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump's message was simple. I'm going to create jobs. The way I'm going to do it is I'm going to stop the immigrants from taking your jobs. I'm going to stop trade. I'm going to get rid of these environmental regulations that are easy to understand. Easy to understand. And, uh, and, and, and we're going to bring manufacturing back. Now, if you had asked folks beforehand, could, could you sell that to the American people? Most people have said, that's crazy. You're not going to convince the American people that uh, we can bring coal and manufacturing jobs back. But Donald Trump believed this. He had a vision. He, he stuck with it. People are so afraid, in some sense, in our party. I went to one of the caucus meetings, and they said, well, you can't talk about innovation jobs. You can't talk about the jobs of the future. That's Silicon Valley speak. But I, I challenged them to actually go into these communities and talk to coal miners and steelworkers and ask them what jobs they want for the future. If Trump could sell a vision of his jobs, why can't we sell an aspirational vision of the mix of jobs of the 21st century and let the chips fall where they may? Uh, In uh, advancing the economy, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Ro Khanna. I guess I have a couple of reactions to that. One is that Bernie Sanders also, who you supported for president, was uh, talking about bringing manufacturing back and uh, struck some of the themes uh, that the uh, anti-trade theme of Trump, uh, some of the more populist themes, uh, obviously in a a much different uh, context. But uh, so um, what, what attracted you to his vision, or I know you, I'm, I'll ask a, I guess, a cynical question, which is, <laughs> you you ran for uh, Congress before. And lost. And lost, and uh, were kind of branded by your opponent as a tool of the corporate interests. Tech and, interests, yes. Tech interests. So was the, was supporting Bernie Sanders a way of getting the, the, uh, the stench of the elite off of you? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, there were two things that drew me to, to Sanders' campaign. Uh, one was his uh, anti-establishment message. Well, one of the reasons, one of the most frustrating things running against an incumbent in Congress was this whole uh, rigged system where everyone endorses the incumbent. You have a bunch of super delegates who uh, choose the system or, or uh, and uh, institutional players. And I think part of Sanders and his appeal was he's saying that that's not democracy, that in a democracy we ought to have competition. Uh, we ought not to anoint a candidate. Uh, we ought not to have a superdelegate process. We ought not to have PAC money and, and lobbyist money. And uh, that's something, of course, President Obama had done and I had done in both my campaigns, not take PAC or lobbyist money. And he was running with this message of reform. And I think that really uh, appealed to me. The second part was foreign policy. Uh, you know, my view is... Uh, uh, similar to John Quincy Adams, that uh, 
you know, you don't go uh, overseas for monsters to destroy, but uh, you uh, give uh, moral support and, and, and the voice of support. Uh, he put it much more eloquently uh, to people uh, for freedom ar- around the world, but that doesn't mean that we go in and, and invade and uh, try to get into wars. And, and Qu- John Quincy Adams explained that because he said people's motives in getting in those wars are often more complex than freedom, and America won't uh, understand what those motives are. And I think Bernie Sanders had a very consistent uh, critique. I disagreed with the escalation in Afghanistan. I disagreed. I mean, I have tremendous admiration for President Obama. I think mm-hmm. he's one of the great presidents. But, you know, I disagreed with that part. I disagreed with uh, the in- invasion in Libya. Uh, I-, I certainly was opposed to the war in Iraq. And I th- and-, and there was part of Bernie Sanders' foreign policy vision that, that attracted me. And the final point uh, was the this sense on what what do you think is the big question for the country? My view uh, is that the big question for this country right now is are we going to be uh, one America or are we going to fragment? I think that's what elected President Obama. I still think his greatest speech was 2004 where uh, it wasn't health care. At the Democratic Convention. I don't think, I mean, you would know much more what elected him, but I don't think it was any specific policy. I think it was his sense. People said, wow, we finally have someone who may be able to heal the divisions and bring this country together. And if you believe that, if you believe that the single focus of ours should be how do we bring this country together, and you know that half the country is being left out, and you know that trade at best, even if positive, is going to have a disproportionate impact precisely on the people being left out, then wouldn't you want an economic policy that's going to speak to the folks who are being left out so that they don't have a backlash against immigrants, against technology. And I think Sanders understood that. He understood that with Social Security and Medicare and healthcare, it was speaking about uh, stabilizing middle-class aspirations for those left behind. But even as, but even as he did, you obviously had difference, differences with him on... Uh, on some things. Yeah. Like trade. On some forms of trade. But I, but I was critical of TPP. I was critical of... Uh, uh, because I th- partly I was critical of it on the sense that it was the wrong message at that moment. I don't think that that should have been the priority. I rather the priority have been investing in apprenticeship programs or or healthcare or other other areas. Do you think the country's stronger because a TPP is 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 has been uh, withdrawn by President Trump? No, I, I don't think that the country is stronger, but do I think more jobs would have been uh, displaced? Possibly, yes. Do what I about th- created? I think it's an open question. It's an open question where those jobs would have been created. It's an open question whether those jobs would have been created in my district and, and in the coast, but whether, whether those agreements would have helped American workers of precisely the folks who are feeling left out, I think is an open question. So, you know, I... I got ahead of way ahead of myself because right. all this stuff inter- interests me. But what also interests me is uh, is is your biography, and particularly I asked about your folks and and about uh, your upbringing. But but your grandfather was one of the leaders of the independence movement in India with Gandhi, and uh, can you talk talk about him because he apparently was a big influence on you. He was so. Uh, I uh, would see him when I uh, over the summers uh, as, a, as, a, as someone young, and he also had a huge uh, family uh, impact in the family lore and tradition. Well, 
tell, he, t- he, tell me he, his story. His, so he he was uh, spent four years in jail in the 1940s during the Quit India movement with Gandhi and others uh, when uh, there was a independence movement against against the British and he was uh, spent 30 40 years of his life basically fighting for uh, India's independence and it made me uh, realize two things one that the life of politics mattered uh, you know here he was at 25 or, or even younger his parents wanted him to be a uh, to go into the clothing business and of course uh, for those who are students of uh, of world history part of the Indian independence movement was not was using their own cloth and not using British cloth. And so my grandfather said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he didn't make much money. And he went and said, I'm going to be dedicated to fighting for uh, India's independence. And he did that for uh, until India became a free country. And I'm I'm certain, even though I can't trace a direct uh, connection, it's not like he said, Ro, you should go into politics or someone ever said that. But that, that growing up with that, uh, made me believe that politics mattered. Uh, and it's you know what's remarkable to me as I see other members of Congress, how many of them had parents or grandparents or uncles who were involved in some way in something, activism or politics, that made them sort of believe that politics could be a, a calling uh, for them. And for me, that, that was my grandfather and his story. Uh, and 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 how long did he live uh, in your he, life? He passed away when I was uh, eleven or twelve, and uh, you know I had a number of conversations, of course, with him about the Indian independence movement that I remember. But uh, his story. What about what about his years in prison? Did he talk to you about that? He did, but more my grandmother talked mm-hmm. about that because she lived till till I was uh, well into to my late uh, early thirties, and she talked about the impact that had on uh, the family. I mean, she never wanted me to go into politics because for her, politics was just a life of sacrifice. And, uh, you know, she spent years not seeing my uh, grandfather and not even knowing at times whether he was alive. My mom grew up more or less with a, a single parent uh, until she was in her uh, in her teenage years. And so uh, for, for her, uh, politics was all... Uh, sacrifice. And I, I remember still she would have these conversations with my mother uh, and, and saying, well, whatever he does, he shouldn't shouldn't go into politics. Uh, but but I, I, I definitely had uh, heard tell stories. And, 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 you know, all my cousins and uncles and aunts, they tell stories about, about my grandfather. You know, um, you hear these independence stories and the incredible sacrifices that people made for freedom to create liberal democracies and so on. Um, you And now you see this movement around the world that in which liberal democracies are, uh, are under assault. I know you, you preached a kind of uh, uh, John Quincy Adams detachment, uh, but you must be concerned about that. And it seems linked to this economic issue that we were talking about before, because America is not the only place where uh, old jobs are disappearing, middle-class wages are being threatened, and people are feeling unsettled and exacerbated by you know, migrant communities coming in and so on. So uh, as someone who was sort of born listening to these independent stories, 
how concerned are you about the, the state of liberal democracies around the world? Well, I'm in part I'm uh, hopeful uh, because I think that there's so many parts of the world, uh, like India, like even China, others parts of the world where uh, folks now have uh, the opportunity of technology and the economy to 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 help people who were making a dollar a day or to start to build a middle class uh, and to 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 have uh, opportunity. I mean, I think so. There's there's the benefits. I think also of uh, technology and, and and economic development. Uh, now the challenge is uh, that China wouldn't include among liberal democracies. Well, no, but the the, the hope is that it could go uh, that it could lead eventually to to liberalization. You're like a you're like a half glass full. Well, I I believe here's my theory. I believe that the 21st century will be America's absolute greatest contribution to world history for a very simple reason. If you believe that America's Greatness ultimately is that it's a nation founded on a philosophic idea and not culture. And the first time it's actually going to be tested really is the 21st century. I mean, this is the first time you've got Hindus and Jews and Buddhists. And and if we get that right, if we actually become this universal nation in a way of saying, uh, living up these ideals that you don't have to have a cultural uh, blood basis for a nation, that's a great contribution. And I, I don't see any reason why why we won't. There are going to be uh, huge challenges along the way. But the history has been pretty good. I mean, think about it, David. Why wouldn't I be optimistic? I'm an Indian-American Hindu whose parents were immigrants to this country, who's representing arguably the most economically powerful district in the world with Google and Apple and Yahoo in a district that uh, has less than 2% Hindu population and that looks like every part of the globe. So, Look at the opportunities that that America still provides people uh, of different backgrounds and different races. And I, part of my reticence to say, do, do I think Trump engaged in in some terrible rhetoric and speech that appealed to our worst instincts? Yes. Do I think that's why pe- sixty million people or whatever voted for him? No. But- no. I, I, and I wouldn't. I would certainly not connect those two things. I think one of the things that is too facile is the the, the ease with which uh, people who didn't support him are, were willing to characterize those who did, and and there was a little of that the other way as well. But this uptick in hate crimes uh, and. Uh, this fundamental appeal to division um, has consequences for Absolutely. a society. So, um, I, look, I'm a, the son of an immigrant, too, and I've lived one of those stories as well, and I believe deeply in this country. But it just feels like we're being challenged now that that whole vision of uh, of, of the pluralistic society in which, uh, you know, these many strands come together to, to form this very uh, sturdy cloth and, uh, you know, that that is, that that premise is being challenged. I think that the change was so fast. You had um, an African-American with a Muslim name, middle name become president twice, a woman win the popular vote, the most diverse Congress in history, gay marriage, Transgender rights. I think we, 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 there was such rapid change that uh, perhaps there was a sense of slowing down and a moment of reflection. Uh, but democracy, that, that voice should be heard. It, it will be defeated in the 
free marketplace ideas, and then we'll be emerge stronger. Uh, let me tell you an anecdote that gave me a real amount of hope. Uh, there was a senior Republican, uh, but this was before the president's joint address to Congress. He had grown up in the segregated South. Uh, he had said that he w- he had served in uh, uh, in in Korea, and he said that when he came came back to Memphis, uh, that was a, a, a more violent zone than than when he was in Korea. And he said to me, "Ro, I hope the president uh, tonight or tomorrow night, I forget when I had the conversation, uh, says something to bring this country together. That we we need to do that. We can't have this division." And you know, the president. Uh, uh, didn't do enough, but he did start out by condemning the Kansas uh, incident. I think fundamentally most people in this country want us to come together. I think that there is uh, an element uh, that uh, of stoking fear that can last for an election cycle. Maybe it can last uh, for an uh, appeal to a minority. I don't think that's where the heart and soul of this country is. You... Uh one of the other things that has created a challenge in in today's political climate in today's society is the technology of communications and how people get their information and your your as you point out your your district is sort of the locust of all uh, uh of that um locust i should say not locust that was a freudian slip <laughs> but um uh and you know, it, it feels as if we are not just living in geographic silos, um, you know, more prosperous, you know, Democrats in urban areas, uh, uh, people who are, are more apt to be struggling, um, more conservative in, in rural areas. But we're also our, our media habits and, our, and how we get information is being um, uh, defined by technology and we're – we have media outlets that you know we tend to choose to affirm our points of view and not just inform our points of view how do we uh how do we navigate that because you talk about the free market and democracy and i believe in that but the market is a little less free if pe- if there isn't um if if people aren't exposed to a wide range of views i agree with that but i'm not sure that the old model where you had walter cronkite and uh, two other anchors give uh, the news uh, is uh, the best uh, in a long term for democratic thought. So, uh, well, he's not around anymore, so no worries about that. No, no, obviously, and I have great <laughs> respect for 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 him. But you know, I you know, or Tom Brokaw or whoever. Right. The, the a citizen has never been more able to have a voice in this country. I mean, I tell people that I go onto the House floor and give some speech, and that often matters far less than someone in my district who has a clever tweet or a clever Facebook post and gets far more likes and and shares. There's never been a time where a a citizen has had more possible uh, possibility of a voice. Uh, Look at uh, John Ossoff's race. I mean, no one knew who he was. The guy raised $8 million, almost became a congressman at the age of 30. Uh, and you saw Obama's he, rise he, or Trump's rise. So I, I think his supporters would uh, beg me to say at this moment that he still could become a congressman. I hope he does. You know, in June, yeah. and, you know, I certainly will be supporting him, and I, I, I think he's a, a, a very talented uh, person. But, but the point is that there is that we've been we, we're enabling more democracy, not the backroom dealing. And now, to your point on 
well, are people just going to confirm the views that they have? Uh, partly, the, the, that that is, uh, I think, the case, because you now don't read a newspaper. You can select uh, part of the, the, the articles you want. I, I still do, by the way, which yeah. causes my, uh, my young aides here to tease me mercilessly. You read the paper version? I, I do, yeah. I That's like great. it. That's great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I've even been known to rip a clip out from time to time, which is hugely uh, not your own press. Amusing David, to everybody <laughs> under the age of 40. So. Uh, but so the question, though, is but but at the same time, uh, there's also a lot more uh, of an understanding of, of, on foreign policy. Right. We, we see the world. We see America now uh, more as uh, other people may see us. Uh, we understand dissident voices far more. Uh, we understand um uh, we, we we have a perspective that's far more broad in in outlook, and so the question is: Okay, is it temporarily more polarized? Yes, but I fundamentally believe in the long run, uh, having people with more information and more choice will lead to a healthier uh, debate in society than uh, having uh, the information concentrated in in the hands of the few, and. And David, the, the 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 test of this is: look, the twentieth century was one of the most bloody, unjust centuries in in in, in things in, in in world history. We had two world wars, we had a cold war, we had colonialism. We had it wasn't exactly like the information flow led to this world of peace and justice. It's not clear to me that the uh, that the tools of Facebook and Twitter and more communication and more citizen empowerment is going to lead to a less just country or less just world. We're going to take another break and we'll be back with Ro Khanna. We should say that uh, it is true that there were two world wars in the 20th century, but there also hasn't been another one since, in part because global institutions grew, American leadership uh, grew, um, and uh, uh, what do you think the test should be for President Trump says the involvement, uh, the Amer- American involvement should be about American interests. Um, how would you define when America should project strength, it, it, you know, military uh, strength in the world? Well, there's a uh Two points, if I may. The first, one of the most disappointing parts of President Trump's inaugural speech was when he said, uh, we're going to be like any other nation, and we're going to look after our interests. Part of what makes us exceptional is that we're not like every other nation. We had a moral aspiration of freedom. You know, you read that John Quincy Adams, we don't go to slay monsters. He talks about how the American impulse is to see liberty around the world and to see a more just society. And, and that's what makes America exceptional, unlike other nations. So it was ironic to me that here, uh, someone who was proclaiming America's greatness was putting us uh, in such mundane terms that we were just like any other nation. That's not really uh, America at its most exceptional. Now, the question is, though, uh, we, can, we should always give voice to our values. Uh, we should always fight for our values. So in Assad's case, for example, I would say, uh, let's go uh, seek an international tribunal uh, of, of war crimes. Let's support Germany with universal jurisdiction to prosecute him. Let's make the case uh, at the UN that he's uh, had a policy of basically allowing for 4 million Sunnis to uh, leave his country. 
and make the moral case. Now, I get that Russia will probably veto it and China will be vetoing it, but we, we should lead with moral clarity. But that doesn't mean that uh, that is always the time to intervene militarily, partly because when we've intervened, we've often made matters worse. I mean, when we intervened mm-hmm. in Iraq, that's what led to... Uh, no, I mean, look, you know, I, 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 I agree with you. I think uh, that the... the, the and this was... Um, I know this was President Obama's view, but the question that we rarely ask or ask too infrequently is, and then what? If we do this, then what? If we invade, then what? If we topple uh, Saddam Hussein, then what? How does it, how does this cohere? What is the American role going to be? And obviously Syria poses an even more complex uh, mix right now. Although when you talk about sort of American as not being like other countries, it was kind of stunning when the president was the only Western leader to call uh, uh, President Erdogan in Turkey the other day after an election that was clearly uh, of of in dispute uh, and that consolidated power and kind of and restricted uh, democracy in that country. And you wonder about the people who are fighting for freedom and democracy there and and how disappointing that must have been, given America's role, as John Quincy Adams described it, uh, in the world from the beginning of our republic. And I don't want to keep referring to John Quincy Adams, but it's one thing on this podcast. John Quincy, I got to get that guy on my podcast, I, 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 because I, I, he obviously is if, filled if every, with wisdom. If, if every uh, member of Congress senator and, and cabinet member read his just excerpt on not slaying monsters, we'd be a much better democracy. Maybe Barack Obama was as good a writer, but we, we, I, when I read that, I, I, I think, wow, I wish there were more members of Congress or senators or cabinet members who, who wrote like him. I mean, it was uh, so thoughtful. Uh, but the But the point is that... There's a way. Can't your staff just print it up? You could put it on their desks. They can study it. Well, I, I doubt that. I, I'm just a freshman there, David. You know, <laughs> you're, not not, gonna, you're not allowed to uh, offer readings, huh? You know, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't know what they'd uh, think about uh, think about that. But I, but I think the, the the point is there is a way to be idealistic in our values and uh, to be consistent in those values, to speak out for human rights, to speak out for democracy, to, to give expression to dissident movements, and yet be uh, judicious with the projection of military force and say we're not going to—our first policy on that is do no harm, because when we toppled Mossadegh, when we invaded Iraq and led to the creation of ISIS, when we were in Afghanistan, and uh, we know that 60 per, only 40 percent of Afghanistan isn't under uh, any control that you have uh, a, a total uh, chaos situation there that 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 we aren't uh, able to pick uh, the cause of freedom and and Quincy Adams said that what what our quest to to save liberty will actually make us dictatorial and more people will see us being uh, there by force than by liberty, because people's motives may not be as pure as ours. They may be fighting this war, these wars, for ambition or greed or their own interests, where we're projecting our values of freedom. So I think that there is a way. Do you think that? Uh, let's go back in history, because yeah. you talked about the two world wars. Do you think the United States did the right thing yes. in intervening there? Yes, because I think that we were attacked on uh, in, in World War II. I also think we did the right thing in intervening uh, when we were attacked after 9-11. I was for the uh, initial uh, uh, strikes on on terrorists. uh, And we should definitely, uh, if we are attacked, uh, we should 
definitely uh, respond. And I have no problem going after terrorists or terrorist camps in in other parts of the world, with uh, if they, especially if they attack us. But here's one of the things that people often, I think, uh, get uh, get mistaken. They say, well, if we don't act in Syria or if we don't act in, in, in Iraq, somehow people are going to underestimate American resolve. Anyone who has observed American history would be utterly foolish to underestimate our resolve when we are attacked directly. I don't think there should be any doubt that we would— Well, you think that's the test, that whenever we sh- were attacked directly, that, sh- that should be the litmus test? For the use of force, yes. I mean, absent, absent some— very compelling reason. And and if we are going to do a humanitarian mission, here's what I don't understand. We often uh, have a domestic face to the use of missiles and an international face to humanitarian aid. So when the Syrian missiles, the 59 missiles fall, uh, the Syrian people aren't going to tell the story that uh, Americans helped save folks from chemical weapons, even though, though I think that that genuinely was probably our motive. And I, I, I think it was a wrong decision, but I don't think people had some ulterior motives. I don't question their motives. But that's not the story. The story that Syrian kids are going to grow up learning is there were 59 missiles that had an American label on them. and uh, But yet we're not providing aid to the 2 million refugees in Turkey or the refugees other po- places. Those are international institutions. Wouldn't we want the military strikes in humanitarian situations to have a international label on them, uh, the NATO or UN, and to have the aid be American. Now, I'm not saying internationalize the forces when our interests are at stake. If American national security is at stake, have American forces fight. Don't uh, we're the best in the world? But why are we uh, bearing all the brunt of the negativity on these humanitarian missions? And so, I I just think we have to rethink uh, some of our foreign policy. One of some of the real Critics on foreign policy say that uh, the U.S. were so powerful, we get away with some of these mistakes. If we were actually in a uh, in a neighborhood in the Middle East, where we were not, we would f- suffer much more consequence for for some of the mistakes we made. But it has not made us safer, and it hasn't made us more well liked. It's not in our national interest. Um, I, I, there's one other piece of your biography that I just had to ask you about, which is uh, you said that your grandfather inspires you to think about the importance of politics and career in politics. You went off to law school, and two years later you were running for Congress in in California. Um, That seemed precipitous. Um, What caused you to do that? Was it a good idea? Were you ready for that? I wasn't ready. It was a a mistake in retrospect, but I I stood up against the war in Iraq. I mean, Tom Lantos had voted for the war in Iraq, and I was— opposed to the war. And uh, maybe, you know, it was this this sense of uh, uh, foreign policy, and it was post 9-11. You had uh, uh, there the South Asian community, actually some of the folks, I'm of Indian origin, but I had a friend, Pakistani-American, who was uh, detained post 9-11, said, go back to your country. There was a large amount of actual discrimination back then, I think, against South Asians, much more so than uh, even now. Uh, you had Bobby Jindal then running for governor uh, on a platform uh, of, you know, he had converted his faith, and, and I don't judge that, but he mm-hmm. was running against gay rights, against women's rights. I didn't think that represented uh, the values of the diaspora. Now, uh, I was naive. I'm glad I didn't win. I certainly wouldn't have been ready to be in uh, Congress, uh, but it was probably the most idealistic thing I've I've done. Uh, and since then, I've become 
uh, as anyone in politics is a little bit more uh, tactical and, 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 and strategic. That was out of pure, uh, okay, let's run and see what, what happens. Um, you, you, co- you come to Congress at a, a pretty tumultuous a time you got, and and I'd be remiss having you here if I didn't ask you uh, what you think the next months are going to be like, because there are a series of potentially difficult challenges ahead uh, relative to the budget, whether there's a budget resolution, whether the government uh, operates, uh, you know, or shuts down. Uh, you've got a debt debt ceiling vote coming down the the road here, and um, uh, potential battles over a number of other issues. Where do you think this is all headed, and where do you think there's any opportunity for Democrats to uh, work with the administration, work with Republicans on any issue? And what's the likely what What are we looking at in terms of potential showdowns here? I think the first priority for the Democrats is to make sure that we don't have uh, harm, and we've actually done a fairly good job of, uh, and not those of us in Congress, but Democrats across the country, of making sure that the Affordable Care Act wasn't uh, repealed and people didn't lose insurance. Uh, we need to stand up to make sure they don't cut meals on wheels. They don't make cuts on uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities. They don't cut weatherization programs that uh, basically allow uh, seniors to get heat. I mean, there's some cuts here that... All of these uh, are sort of uh, assumed in the president's uh, preliminary budget. Assumed in the, the budget. I mean, the most... The, it's a it's a wonky issue, but one of the most appalling cuts is the manufacturing extensionship partnership. If you talk to Republicans or Democrats who are at the Department of it Commerce... It is... Well, explain what that is. You know, it's, it's, a, it's this program that costs... $140 million, which in the context, just to put it into context, we spend $600 billion on our defense department. So this is a uh, less than uh, half a percent. And it helps small and medium-sized manufacturers learn the latest techniques and technology so they can compete in the world and have manufacturing at home. We just had a president who ran on bringing manufacturing jobs back. You would think he would say, you know what, let's put much more funding for the manufacturing extensionship partnership so we could help manufacturers across this country. Instead, that's one of the programs on the chopping block. There are things the president could do uh, that I think would put the Democrats in a position of wanting to work with them or being forced to work with them. For example, the apprentice, if the president came out and said, uh, I want to create one million apprenticeship programs across this country and I'm going to fund them. You know, I did the apprentice show. I get the apprentice, apprenticeships work. Uh, Democrats join me. I think you'd have a hard time voting against that. If the president came and said, uh, you know, I get that the way I campaigned, we were going to have importation of drugs from Canada uh, so that uh, Americans uh, in many of the states that voted for me don't have to pay a lot for drugs. You'd have a hard time of Democrats voting against that. If the president even said, look, I'm going to put money, public money in building uh, basic infrastructure, which I think if there's anything that motivates them, I used to think, you know, what, what motivates someone to run for president? I get that everyone has power and other things, but you got to, there's something probably you want to do. I used to think, well, at least Trump would want to build stuff. I mean, maybe that's what motivates him. And uh, if he just said, look, I'm going to put pure, uh, just a, a straight up infrastructure bill, you'd have Democrats having a hard time yeah, to vote yeah, against. I, I think that's right. You, just on as an aside on that, it looks more like it's going to come in as a, package in which tax credits are given to private 
concerns to do infrastructure, uh, which seems a lot less effective in terms of basic uh, reparations and building of the nation's infrastructure. A lot less effective and a lot less likely to have the impact across the country and the places that need it the most. I mean, it's going to be uh, helpful to some of the developers and the big big businesses. Here's the irony of, of things. No, it's giving tax credits to people who, who uh, would probably otherwise have gone forward with their projects anyway. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 who have who are probably located a lot of those developers and financial interests in in New York. Not a criticism, but that's those are the people who are going to be benefiting. I mean, why not just give states uh, block grants to develop things? And, and make sure it's uh, across the country. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm saying things that would help the states that voted for, for Trump. Uh, the irony of all of this is Trump ran uh, in part saying, I'm against the, uh, the, the, the order has, that has been governing things. I don't want the Wall Street folks in charge. I'm, I'm for Main Street, not Wall Street. And he's picked folks who literally, some of them, frankly, would have been in... Uh, you know, they would have been much more rational in a Hillary Clinton regime. But some of the folks like Gary Cohen would have been, it could have argued he would have been the uh, in a Hillary Clinton administration. I mean, it's just the same folks uh, with a little bit more of a handout to Wall Street that are running the country. And so you, the, the biggest criticism of Trump, I think, is he's not governing like he campaigned. People expected to get someone who was going to fight for Main Street. And they got someone who's doubled down on economic policies for Wall Street. And I think that, that uh, when that gets through and people will uh, realize that, I think that's his biggest vulnerability. What about yourself? What, what, you're obviously not someone without ambition. What, what are, what are your, how do you see your life unfolding here? I know you just came to Congress. I think the, the, I have always said that representing uh, Silicon Valley is an extraordinary opportunity. And I mean that sincerely. I mean, it's like representing a, Athens or Florence, it's a place that's driving so much innovation and technology. And if I can help... If everybody in Athens and Florence uh, <laughs> sat on exercise balls and stared at computers all day. But. And, uh, you know, but there's this huge sense that uh, people aren't participating in that future. And that future may be scary for folks. And that we need to make a better, do a better job of making sure that the gains of uh, technology aren't just going to a few, but that they're being felt by uh, everyone in the country. And if I can become a leading economic voice uh, on how we transition from an industrial to a digital age, uh, that would be great. I, I mean, on my most ambitious moments, I say, you know, could I be a counter to Paul Ryan on economic thinking uh, in the House uh, in the way, you know, we need some uh, creative, bold economic thinking in the Democratic Party. I also think this, I, uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, people say, well, what do you, young people, what do you need to do to go into politics? And, uh, you know, people say, well, you got to learn how to knock on doors and you need to learn how to fundraise and you know, need to uh, learn how to, uh, to to write good press releases. And my advice to folks is often, well, um, one, you should read. And, uh, and it's not because I went to University of Chicago and my wife will tell you I was a nerd growing up and she doesn't, uh, she criticizes those skills. It's because I think, Politics at its best, what fueled my passion for politics more than anything, more than my grandfather or my story, was, a, it was an interest in ideas. Our founders were thinkers, profound thinkers, people who, who thought about the world and, and what they wanted the world to be. And I, the, the biggest 
exhilaration I get in politics is to, to, to be able to participate in, in these ideas and to see those ideas uh, possibly become uh, part of policy. And so uh, I, I have huge ambition. I want to have shape big ideas, big thinking uh, for the Democratic Party, for the country. Uh, the, the the platform people and the title doesn't matter as much in in today's world. What matters is, uh, you know, how many how many retweets and Facebook shares you get. Well, I think it is fair to say that the technologists who you represent and, and the community you represent out there in a- in Athens on the west <laughs> uh, are creating enormous capacities. Uh, to do all kinds of very, very important, constructive things that can drive humanity uh, forward. But it is also uh, moving forward at a warp speed race, uh, a pace perhaps greater than uh, our ability to get our arms around all of the implications of it. And it will take big thinking to uh, to lead that transition from, uh, from uh, one economy uh, to another and not leave large numbers of Americans uh, behind. So I wish you luck in that pursuit. We need all the big thinking that we can get. Uh, Ro Khanna, thank you for being with us and being at the Institute of Politics, and welcome back to your alma mater. Thank you for having me on, and thank you uh, uh, for uh, your career in public service. It was uh, an honor to do this one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.